Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And we are beginning Revelation chapter 5 today. I love this chapter. I do too. But before we get started, I just want to remind you, if you would like to come alongside Life Assurance Ministries with your financial donations, you can do so by visiting proclamationmagazine.com, and there's a link right there to do that. You can also sign up for weekly emails by going to that website, and you can get updates regularly on what's going on with the ministry. Also, we'd love it if you'd leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and usually you can rank them by stars, but if you could write a review, that really helps to promote this channel when people search for things related Mm -hmm. to Adventism. So before we jump in, Colleen, this chapter is full of hymns and worship. And Mm -hmm. I want to know when you were an Adventist, when you thought revelation, did you think worship? Oh, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I thought confused. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting to me to look at this now and to see how chapter 5 is filled with hymns. Actually, there were hymns in chapter 4, too, and the two two are linked together. But you know what really hit me um, while I was preparing for this is that the very last chorus in Handel's Messiah is from this chapter. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Those are the lyrics for that last chorus in the Messiah. (laughs) And I had no idea as an Adventist that that came out of Revelation 5. And I certainly didn't know that whole idea of the worship in heaven preceded all the suffering and the plagues and the judgment that's going to come from the Lamb. Yeah. I didn't know that order. Mm -mm. And, you know, we talked about this before a little bit, but like, I remember you mentioning that some people think that Revelation is not in order, and I've heard that, I've learned that too. But when I look at this now, I don't want to swear on the idea that I think it's in perfect chronological order, but I do think there is something chronological about it because of the way the visions are set up. Mm -hmm. There's four successive big visions, and this worship precedes the suffering Mm -hmm. on earth that the Lamb is going to pour out. (laughs) I didn't know that. And it's amazing, and I have to confess that when I finished working on my notes for this podcast last night, I was having trouble not crying. Yeah. How about you? Oh, it's a different book. I did not think worship when I thought about the book of Revelation. I I didn't think. I think I felt. I felt fear Uh and anxiety. I felt uh, curious about whether or not I was going to make it through God's judgment on the earth, you know, because I believed we were going to go through it and it was a test. It was a very different uh, reaction than I get now. Now, I was sharing with you earlier When I'm at church and we're singing, or when the preacher is proclaiming the gospel truth, my mind is going to Revelation. Yeah. My mind is going to this throne room. I've been overwhelmed by what we've been looking at the last several weeks. It's true what Jesus said, (laughs) that those who read and hold fast to the words of this book will be blessed. It is a blessing, and it, it has created worship in my own life. And so to see that this worship is taking place and to know what's going on in this scene that starts in chapter four and and continues here in this chapter, understanding that this is the moment where God hands Jesus, or actually where Jesus takes from the Father, Mm -hmm. the deed to the earth and the authority to execute this long-awaited judgment. 
against those who have rebelled against him and who have deceived people. He's going to take down the evil that we are all suffering under right now. And so for the church, for God's people to be worshiping, and as we're going to see in this chapter, falling on the ground, casting their crowns before him, worshiping him for what he's already done, knowing what he's about to do, suddenly I find myself as a different character in the book. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not fearing hiding no. in the cliffs and mm-hmm. am I going to make it? Now I see myself, I'm sorry, this is probably Isa Jesus, but I see myself on the floor mm-hmm. worshiping. Well, it's not Isa Jesus because we are told by the same author who wrote Revelation in John 5.24 that those who have believed have passed from death to life. And that's a present tense thing that happens when we believe. So, Nikki, this isn't Isa Jesus. You are in a different group of people than when you were an Adventist. <laughs> you are in a different perspective. You're worshiping now, yeah. along with the people described here that John saw in vision. Yeah. I don't think it's Isa Jesus at all. It's an amazing chapter. And I think I've been overwhelmed at understanding that the Lamb who gets this scroll is being given publicly, not just the authority, because he had the authority because of his death already. It's because of his authority, he takes the scroll from the Father. But he is in charge. (laughs) He is in charge of the earth from here on out in the book of Revelation. And everything that's going to happen is because of the Lamb. It's not because of an angry old man sitting on a throne. This is the Lamb (laughs) who submitted to death And he is the judge, and he's qualified to judge because he's been here, he took this sin, he took the wrath of God, and he knows how intractable the sin is of the people who refuse to believe. That's just kind of overwhelming to me. This is the lamb who's brought us from death to life, (laughs) and those who haven't believed are going to die eternally. And that is sad, Mm -hmm. but it's still just, and I can see the justice now. Mm -hmm. Shall we read the chapter? Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, Nikki, we have a continuation of the worship in heaven that began in chapter 4. And here, this particular chapter opens with John seeing something. It's a very interesting thing. What does he see in verse 1? He sees a scroll. Yeah. That's the focus. (laughs) It is. He says he saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. And then he details it. it. It was written on both sides, which was unusual. Yes, because scrolls are made of papyrus, which is a reedy substance that Mm -hmm. comes from, you know, a plant. And one side, when it was all matted out and made into a writing material, was smooth, and the other side was rough. But this was written on both sides. And that's not quite unique in the Bible, but almost unique. Mm -hmm. And it also has seven seals. Now, that's interesting. What does seven seals signify? Ooh, that alliterated. Well, I honestly had no idea until I studied for this chapter. I mean, I knew that they were something that authenticated a document, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of history connected to a scroll with seven seals. There is a lot of history. You know, I was helped, interestingly, by a paragraph from a sermon that S. Lewis Johnson gave on this particular chapter, and this helped me a lot, and I'll tell you why. All my life, I've heard that the scroll that the Lamb takes from the one on the throne is the title deed to the earth. And I'd think, okay, how do you know that? I never really understood how to derive that understanding of the scroll. And I mean, you can do it by implication, looking backwards as the seals are opened, Mm -hmm. but I never understood how they could be so sure of this. And there are biblical things that give us that idea, but there's also historical stuff. (laughs) And it was the historical idea that S. Lewis Johnson gave. And I thought, I'm just going to read this because it was very helpful to me. And this is what he said. An individual back in the day, at the time that John would have written, this would have been true. An individual signified that he would like to write his will and the rule would be written. The testator would appear in the presence of seven witnesses. Now, the testator is the one writing the will. And then the seven witnesses would have someone else who was with them who would step forward called the familia emptor. And that is a person who is going to be like a buyer of the estate representing the family, a friend of the family. This familia emptor had to be a very trusted member of the family because the property of the person who's writing his will, who's, you know, knows he's going to die soon and he's getting everything lined up before he dies. This trusted family member is going to have the property of the estate conveyed to him before the testator dies. That was the custom. So there would be 
like judicial scales represented, and one of the members of the party would put a coin on the scales, and it was like showing that they're being fair and they're entering into this public judgment in front of witnesses and that they're going to be fair in what they ascribe as value to this. But it had to represent the fact that this close, trusted, confidential friend of the one who was making his will bought the property. So he the buyer for the family would strike the coin on the scales, like a representation that he's buying the estate. And then the will, which contained the property and the other things that would be left by the individual who was making the will, who would ultimately die, his things would be legally conveyed to this familia emptor who's buying the estate. And so in a sense, this familia emptor who's buying the estate becomes an interim heir of the one who's making his will. When the person dies, the one who's making the will, then the interim heir would convey the property according to the will, to the testamentary disposition, to the members of the family, or to whomever the property was to be conveyed. The thing that was so helpful to me about this is that I didn't know this kind of thing ever went on. And I'm thinking, this is a very interesting understanding because it helps me understand a lamb taking the scroll from the one on the throne. It's interesting that this whole process takes place in front of seven witnesses. Yes. And Gary said that in Rome, they used to use these seven witnesses to seal the document. So each witness would use their insignia ring to put a seal on. So these these documents yes. had seven seals. This was something that Augustus did when he was authorizing his successor, who would end up being Tiberius. This was common in Roman culture. I didn't know any of that. No, I didn't either. And so the first readers of this would have had all of this knowledge because it was common they to were their, in Rome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was common to them. So it, it made sense to them. And then there's also the wonderful fact that we have a hermeneutic that has a rule that says, look for patterns in scripture. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to understand something, where else do you see this? And so when I was listening to Gary preach through this passage um, at the Word Search Bible study, he pulled from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel mm-hmm. to show that in Jeremiah, we see a scroll as a title deed, like you've just described. Mm-hmm. In Ezekiel, we see a scroll as a prophetic warning. And in Daniel, we see a scroll as detailing what will happen in the time of the end. So all three of these examples of the scroll seem to connect to what's happening in Revelation. This scroll seems to be a title deed to the earth. And as Gary put it, it's a setting forth of the program by which God is going to take possession of the earth because it has judgments related to it. And it relates to the end times. It hits every point that we see foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Revelation is the culmination of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So the scroll in in Jeremiah, the scroll in Ezekiel, the scroll in Daniel, while representing different particulars of the idea of the scroll here in Revelation 5, Revelation 5 sums them up. It is so interesting. This is not in a vacuum. This is not new symbolism, not a new idea. It's a culmination. And the culmination is determined by the Lamb. Yeah. I love the fact that the Lord gives us biblical patterns and 
that his interaction with us is so connected to human culture and human history. I have to say again, there's absolutely no excuse for people who refuse to believe because there's evidence in every direction of what God has done and is doing. It's incredible that we can look in our history books, secular history books, and see how the witness of scripture corroborates with what we know has happened. I find that amazing. I have never seen that so clearly as since we've been going through Daniel and Revelation. Well, because what we're learning is coming from scripture and we're learning from men who know history and who are putting it together. And it is not coming from the hysterical visions of a woman who claims to have a special last day gift for us. There's no rhyme or reason to what she's interpreting. Exactly. In fact, it makes me really mad that she has twisted the brains of so many intelligent Adventists. And it's hard for them to actually look at history and look at the Bible and see it for what it is, because somehow in their heads, they have to harmonize it with her, and she will never harmonize with Scripture, but they have to harmonize it with her just in case she's right. Well, and I know for me, when I would, I didn't read Revelation all the time, but there was that one time I told you about, I've shared Mm -hmm. that I read through it in a day and I ended up a mess on the floor. But as I was reading, I remember thinking, is this where we're doing this? Is this when, you know, God's going to do this in the Sabbath law? And I'm trying to Mm -hmm. understand it and make sense of it, not because I needed to prove Ellen, but because... Everyone I knew and trusted and loved told me that's what was going to happen. See, that's the thing. And everyone I knew and loved and trusted told me that it was all sola scriptura. So, of course, I had to see it in here somewhere. Where was it? Yeah. And so, whether you're deceiving or you're deceived, you're trying to make sense of the pieces. So, you can either argue for it or try to understand it. Right. People need to be rescued out of that and know that you can know it. And it's not that scary if you know the one who wrote it. Not at all. And you know, if you read the Bible like a normal book, you're going to come up with consistent definitions and understandings. Mm -hmm. And really, the hermeneutic determines what path you take when you read Revelation. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to say... We don't part company with believers who understand Revelation in a different way than we do. We understand that. If you know Jesus and you've been born again, you're a brother or sister in Christ forever, and we will not part company. But the fact is, hermeneutic really changes things. Yeah, you land in different places for sure. I just want to throw in there, and I know you know this, and most people listening know this, but Seventh-day Adventist Uh, conclusions are not rooted in any biblical hermeneutic I've ever learned about. They are completely driven by Ellen G. White and the Adventist worldview. There's not a consistent hermeneutic. That's the great controversy. That's what does it for Adventists. So after we see in verse one, the one sitting on the throne, and remember in chapter four, John didn't try to describe God the Father. He just described colors and <laughs> and impressions mm-hmm. of this one on the throne. The one on the throne is holding a book or a scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals, and we come to verses two and three, and what do we see happening here? Well, a mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice this great question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one was. 
No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it, which is interesting. Yeah. I still am trying to figure out, Nikki, why I had so much trouble understanding what this scroll really was. Now, yes, I understood that when the scroll seals were opened, things began to happen. Judgments began to be poured out. But I just couldn't quite get why this scroll was so important and why somebody had to be found to open it. Why Mm -hmm. did it have to be someone so special? Why did it have to just be the lamb? I believed it because it said it, but I didn't understand it. And I'm seeing now this scroll is something that only the lamb can open because only the lamb has understood and taken the death of sin. He's qualified to take charge of the earth. (laughs) And he even said that. Last week, we read the verse in John 5, where Jesus said, no one judges, not even the Father, all judgment has been given to the Son. And we see that beginning to happen here. Mm -hmm. It's because of who he is and what he's done. And I never understood that this was a Christology moment. Yeah, I, I did not either. I appreciated how Gary outlined this chapter. He said that there are three great truths that we see in this passage. That is the centrality of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, and the equality of Christ with the Father. And he divides the chapter up into three parts. He says that it's the search for the worthy one, Mm -hmm. the appearing of the worthy one, and the praise of the worthy one. And then he kind of gave a context to what's going on. He says the throne room of heaven here is essentially the war room. Mm -hmm. It's the staging of Operation Restoration, as he put it. (laughs) That helped give me a picture like, okay, so this is the moment. This is what is going to begin everything else that's going to happen now. in the book of Revelation. And then I remember that the angel said to John, this is what will happen after this. So I think it's the most logical way to think of it, that it is a chronological event and we are in step one. That's how I see it now. And I have to say again, I didn't used to see it clearly, but going through the meanings of these things, understanding the history, knowing that the scroll and the seals represent insignias from trusted witnesses, that this was a pattern that the Romans would have understood, all of this has helped me see what this is really saying. This is very, very big. And the hopelessness in this moment, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. If no one had been able to do that, there would have been no end to sin, no end to evil. That's right. There would have been no one to carry out God's plan and purposes and bring it to completion. So we see that John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. He was grieving. And as I read that when we were preparing, I thought, wait a minute, John, you knew Jesus. You Mm -hmm. knew what he did. You were a part of the birth of the church. You were there at Pentecost. You heard him say, it is finished. You took his mother home with you. Right. You knew the Messiah. You watched him ascend. You knew what was going on. It was interesting because in the word search video I was watching, one of the questions came up, wait a minute, but John knew. (laughs) It was the same question I had. And I think that it was just the nature of seeing it. It was an overwhelming picture of our absolute hopelessness apart from the Christ. It really drove home the fact that we are, by nature, children of wrath. Yes. 
and someone had to rescue us. And without a rescuer, there was no hope. There could be no end to what we were experiencing unless God just wiped it out. The very basic fundamental truth of the born-again person is that they are repentant, that they know that they were not worthy to open that scroll. They know that apart from Christ, they are no better than anybody else. Christians are happy and want to share the gospel because they know the one who opens the scroll. The issue, again, Nikki, is not that it's bad people versus good people. Right. It's dead versus alive. Yeah, and you don't have to stay dead. (laughs) That's right. There's a way out, and the Lamb is the one that gives us that way out. And John is weeping in heaven with everybody else in the throne room because they don't know who's worthy to open the scroll, except that finally an elder does (laughs) tell him who's worthy. One of those 24 elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, and remember that word, something good's coming. Uh (laughs) Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I love that moment. (laughs) (laughs) This may be my best moment in the chapter. (laughs) It's wonderful. And I love the fact that the word conquered is in there. That word stressed me out as an Adventist when I would read the letters to the churches, to him who conquers, to Mm -hmm. him who conquers. Or some versions say overcome. Same word. Overcome. Same word, mm -hmm. same Greek word. He will be the one that's saved. What we see in this throne room, no one had. And we've got John the Apostle in there watching. Yeah. And we've got elect angels who've never sinned and they can't open the scroll. They haven't conquered. But then that elder tells John, Jesus did. Jesus conquered. So he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now, for sure, Jesus is calling the churches to overcome by their faith and by trust and by belief. And that's absolutely important. I don't mean to undermine that, but so often we feel how fragile that is and we worry. And his call to the churches is built on the fact that those believers in those churches are in him. So their overcoming is because they are in him who has conquered. Yeah, Just like we get the righteousness of Christ when we believe, the faith of Christ, the overcoming, the conquering is ours in Christ. And that's what that's about. It's interesting that in verse 5, the elder says to John, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say that he saw a lamb standing as if slain. But before we talk about the lamb, where does this imagery of the lion of the tribe of Judah come from and the root of David? That's a very interesting comparison of symbols. We have the lion and we have the root. (laughs) One is of Judah, one is of David. This comes from somewhere and understanding that will help us understand. So Nikki, talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Sure. So the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49. And you can read about it in verses 8 through 12. This is when Jacob was blessing his sons before he passed away. I like how Gary explained the fact that Jacob's three oldest sons had disqualified themselves from being the leader of the nation. Reuben is described as being unstable as water. Simeon committed a miniature genocide with his brother Levi when their sister had been raped. And so 
these guys were disqualified. But it, which is interesting because Levi was the father of the priestly tribe. Yeah. And yet. And yet. And yet. Mm-hmm. So then he gets to Judah. I love that Gary pointed out that Judah was equally guilty, but when Judah realized he was wrong, he repented. He was the one who stood in front of Joseph and told him that he'd be a slave to him the rest of his life if he'd let Benjamin go free. So he expressed both confession and repentance and offered himself as a substitute. And this is a foreshadowing of the Messiah who would come out of his line. And so when Jacob blesses his son, he tells him, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And Gary pointed out that the language in there actually reads, until he comes to whom it belongs. That's interesting. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We have a messianic prophecy in the blessing to Judah. They expected Messiah to come out of the line of Judah. So that's where we get the lion from the tribe of Judah. From the book of Genesis, yeah, which is so interesting. You know, I'm more and more convinced, Nikki, that we don't really understand the Bible if we ignore Genesis. Oh, yeah. The covenants? The covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the whole line of the patriarchs from Abraham on. And even before that, if we don't understand creation, that Adam and Eve were real people, that they died the day they ate, that God provided a way to cover them in their shame, and that he then wiped out the earth in a in a flood when evil had run so rampant, and then he judged the survivors of the flood when they were still wicked and trying to make a name for themselves and were likely to destroy themselves with what they would accomplish in their evil. He scattered them. He disrupted their languages. If we don't understand Genesis and how God calls Abraham out of all of that chaos and creates the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the tribes out of Jacob, we don't understand the Bible. And here in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his fourth son and calls him a lion and says that the scepter, the royal symbol, will not depart from him until the one to whom tribute is due shall come. And who was that? That was Jesus. That was Jesus. So, isn't that fascinating that this royal tribe had a scepter that belonged to it, and that when Jesus comes, he's the last scepter holder. (laughs) He is the eternal king. To him shall be the obedience of the people. It's incredible. And I I love the fact that this last vision, this last book in scripture points all the way back to the first book and tells us that God's promises at the beginning are just as important at the culmination of human history. That's amazing. And you know what? I know for a fact that most Adventists don't understand that. They know the stories, they've heard them, They don't understand the significance of these connections. No, I I thought everything was do-over. God was like, oh, that didn't work. Do-over. Flood. Just moving on from one do-over to the next until he finds a faithful people and enters Adventism. That was really my perspective. Me too. 
So, Colin, can you talk about the root of David? Well, that's an interesting one, too, because, again, very different symbol from the lion of the tribe of Judah. And a lion evokes images of a <laughs> the king of the jungle, the strong beast that overcomes his adversaries. Root, this is a horticultural image. It's yeah. so different. <laughs> the Messiah is usually called the branch of David. But what's so interesting here is that the symbol of the root of David is used by Jesus himself about himself in Revelation. In 22, in the last chapter of the book, Jesus calls himself the root and the descendant of David. And here's the verse, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So, David, of course, as we know, was the iconic king of Israel. He was the one who we remember for the book of Psalms. He's the one we remember for wanting to build the temple, and it was his son who actually built the temple. It was David who established the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusite city. He took the Jebusites and he established the city of David and the city of Jerusalem in Israel. He is the the king that is the icon for all of Israel and the one all their hopes for the future hang on because Israel is still waiting for that root of David, but we know he has come. <laughs> and so Jesus here is calling himself two different things, the root, which is like the source of David, and the descendant of David, which is one that comes out of David. <laughs> He's calling himself the one that both establishes and brings David into being, and the one that comes from David. <laughs> How do you do that in one person? You have to be God. I think you do. <laughs> He calls himself that. Now, these titles are also used in Isaiah 11.1 1 and 11.10. And here's what those two verses say. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, as you recall, is David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Then, in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. <laughs> and this is the passage that Paul interprets messianically in Romans fifteen twelve, where he says, again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And Paul brings us full circle to see that this root of Jesse the source and son of David is the one who will not only rule over Israel, but over all people. We Gentiles are ushered into this promise. So when that angel said to John that the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, John knew he was talking about the Messiah. The Messiah has done this. Yeah. It's done. And his work of making this come about had been finished of course, he's wondering where this lion is, right? Right. Verse six, it says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He saw a lamb and the lamb was standing, yeah. which is significant, but it also had the marks of slaughter. He also had seven horns and seven eyes. So, what do we make of this lamb? 
the standing lamb who looks like it has been slain. And slaughter, by the way, is not just dying or being killed, like, you know, a deer hit by a car in Mm -hmm. a road. A slaughter is a definite move, an intentional killing for some purpose. It was the picture of a sacrifice. Yeah. It was interesting. Gary pointed out that the word used here for lamb means little lamb. John doesn't use this word in his gospel. In his gospel, he uses omnos, Mm -hmm. but here he uses arneon. And Gary thinks he's doing this to draw contrast between the lion and the slaughtered lamb. It was interesting to me that Gary mentioned this and also J. Vernon McGee mentioned in his commentary that this word, arneon, this little lamb word, is used 29 times in the book of Revelation. The emphasis here, and this is something that was a new thing to me preparing for this podcast for some reason, the emphasis here on this lamb is not the resurrection. He's clearly resurrected. He's standing. He's alive. He's mm-hmm. he's taking the scroll. But the emphasis here is on his slaughter. Yeah. That he submitted to this death. This is the emphasis in the entire book of Revelation. Jesus is worthy. Jesus has inherited the right to carry out the will of God on earth because he submitted to slaughter. And I think about people like that women church that I went to back in, what, 1994 with a group of Adventist women in Loma Linda in a home where they talked about the cross being an inappropriate symbol for women, that that was a sign of divine child abuse, and that maybe we should use the empty tomb instead. It was a horrifying thing to me. Even then, as an Adventist, I knew they were blaspheming. But this is not uncommon among liberal Christians who have abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture. It is Jesus's death that qualifies him for this role that we're going to see him play in the entire book of Revelation. And that was so moving to me, Nikki. I don't even know how to express the significance, even me. I just realized this is something so big. Yeah, The resurrection is everything for us, mm-hmm. but his death is what qualified him and made this all possible. Mm-hmm. It's the death. And that's probably why we see this little lamb standing in the closest proximity to the throne. He was between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. And he has seven horns. The Bible uses horns a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Horns symbolize power and authority and might Mm -hmm. in scripture. And Gary pointed out that the only other creatures in this book said to have horns are the dragon, who's Satan. He has 10 horns. And the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, who also has 10 horns. And the beast out of the earth the false prophet who has two horns. Who is trying to look like a lamb, according to Revelation 13. I find that really interesting. And here we have this lamb, this little lamb, who has submitted to slaughter and bears the marks, having seven, the number of completeness, seven horns. And it is this little lamb who is going to overcome these great horned beasts. That lamb. Yeah. will conquer. 
<laughs> those beasts because he has already conquered. Yeah, but he will not back down. He is going to deal with them. And there's no other place where the Messiah is said to have horns. So this does give a picture that he's the one who's going head to head, locking horns, so to speak, <laughs> with the dragon and the beasts. And he's also said to have seven eyes. And it clarifies that this is the Holy Spirit, that the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We get this from Zechariah chapter four, and it looks at his omniscience and his absolute authority. We talked about this a little bit in chapter one, when we saw the vision that John had of Christ. It's also interesting that the figure of the lamb has two main Old Testament sources. Mm -hmm. There's the little lamb at Passover, and it was a lamb. It was not a grown sheep that the Israelites had to take into their home for 14 days prior to sacrificing it and putting the blood on the doorposts on the night that the death angel flew over. And if the blood was there, their firstborns were saved. And then also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is pictured this way. So this is the lamb whose blood would be shared and Israel would thereby be redeemed. This is the lamb who is standing All the angels in this passage in Revelation are prostrate before this lamb. So he approaches the one on the throne and takes the scroll. He has equal authority with the one on the throne. He stands. He does not bow. He isn't even summoned to the throne. (laughs) He just walks up and takes the scroll. And the lamb approaches God as an equal He takes action from the hand of God on the throne, and it is his death and his slaughter that qualify him to take the scroll from God and open it. And Jesus moves then to the throne and begins from this point on to act as judge. So this is where we move to the next section, the praise of the worthy one. I love the picture of him just walking up to the Father and taking it. The question is sent out who is worthy, and he just walks up and takes this. You know, Nikki, I couldn't help but think all through working on this chapter last night that this is describing the scene that Daniel saw in Daniel 7, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the judgment where he sees the Almighty on the throne and one like a son of man is presented before him and he is given a kingdom. Mm -hmm. You know, we read that last week when we were talking about chapter 4, but I keep thinking... It is so offensive to me now to think that Adventists have taken that passage in Daniel 7 and have tried to use it as a proof text for an investigative judgment beginning. I don't even know how they do that. With a vision from a crazy woman. Exactly. It's just horrifying, to be honest. It's blasphemous. And here we see what's really happening here. The lamb is qualified because the lamb submitted to take our sins and bear the wrath of God so he could redeem us and take charge of the world. This is so not an investigative judgment. No, no. And it's not a God waiting to be vindicated by us. No. In any sense, no one was worthy. No No one could do this. Only he could do this. Only he could approach the father and take from his hand. That's right. Only he is equal with God. God didn't fight him. God didn't even say, what brings you here? You know, This had nothing to do with his reputation in front of all kinds of inhabited worlds. This has nothing to do with the great controversy. Or the law. 
No. And this isn't a side story. No. This is the story. Yes. This. This is the this point. This is the point. Christ is central. He conquered. We were hopeless. He saved us. This has nothing to do with us. Nothing. And that's why when he had taken the scroll, the four living, holy, majestic creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They worshiped the lamb. They were holding harps. They were holding bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of all the saints, guys, our prayers. And they fell to the ground before this slaughtered lamb, and they sang a song, a new song. Yes. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And here's why. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Our pastor, Gary, when he taught through this eight years ago, he said this phrase, the new song, which, by the way, was used 19 times in the book of Psalms, which was primarily written by David, the forerunner of Jesus, if you will. But this means a fresh act or expression of God's power, which is so interesting to me to think about a new song, this new song that's going to be sung in the throne room when Jesus steps up and takes the scroll to open it and begin judging the earth. This is a fresh act or expression of God's power when all heaven acknowledges that the Lamb has the right to judge the earth because of His death. That's not a song. That's I mean, even though it's happened, it's, it's a moment of history, but that's a new song that will be sung when the trouble begins on earth, because Jesus is doing the will of God and bringing to completion everything He has said would happen. You know, I can't help but think about some of the stuff I heard when I was a student at La Sierra University related to the death of Christ. It was a moral point. It was to show how awful we were. It was to show that He loves us. None of that's mentioned here. No. None of that. What's mentioned here is that by His blood, His blood, He ransomed people for God. Yeah. That's what's mentioned here. It is His blood that Adventism tries to obscure. I know that Ellen White said he shed his blood to uphold the law. He shed his blood. You know, all these reasons, you know, <laughs> these moralisms. No, he shed his blood to take the wrath of God so we don't have to. He ransomed us. That's what his blood was for. It was a ransom. Yeah. Period. Period. Why don't people want to believe that? It's, it's messy. clear. I think if people don't want to really admit their sin and really admit that they are dependent upon something outside themselves, bigger than themselves, and they have to admit their guilt, the blood makes them feel icky and guilty. It keeps facing them with their sin, and they really would rather have a philosophical explanation for what's going on. I mean, that's the only thing I can figure. As an Adventist, thinking about Jesus's blood made me feel shame and guilt and disgust. But when I realized that my sin was that big and that I had to repent, then the blood didn't seem icky anymore. Doesn't that remind you of Hebrews chapter 10? Oh my, yes. Hebrews 10, 29, where it says, 
How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Nikki, I can't help thinking Adventism fits that on every count. They diminish the Lord Jesus and what he really did, Mm -hmm. why he really came. They have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. They don't like the blood. Well, and they're putting the blood on Satan. Yes. At the end, so that they can cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. They're going to put that blood on Satan and let him go pay for the sins ultimately. They're going to put the sins of the people on Satan. Yeah. That is not happening in this throne room. No, this is the Lord who took our sins, who paid the price, who shed his blood to pay. I'm sorry, I have to say that again. His blood wasn't representative. He literally propitiated for our sin. He took the wrath of God as he hung on the cross. It's horrifying to me how Adventism has twisted the gospel and has diminished the person of Christ. It's just horrifying. Without understanding what he did, we're not going to sit on the right side of revelation. No, we're not. And all this, Nikki, is why there's worship in heaven. Yeah. So then we come to these hymns that we find in Revelation. Can you talk about the first one? Who is singing? Yeah, this is interesting. So in the first hymn that we just read, he talks about the four living creatures and the elders singing. Then we get to verse 11, and he heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders who were, now we know, on the ground worshiping. He heard the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. They were innumerable. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That is seven That is perfect. Uh This is perfect worship. Now we have joining the elders and the four living creatures who are worshiping before him. We have countless angels who are joining in. And in verse 13, he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Nikki, it's so interesting that he says every created thing. Mm -hmm. Remember when Jesus said, if you don't allow the people to call out on his triumphal entry and say Hosanna to the son of David, that the rocks would cry out. Mm -hmm. Somehow all of creation is singing the praise of the Lamb. And I don't know how that works, but sometimes I look at, you know, I like to look at Artie the Collie. (laughs) I knew you were going there. He's a talking dog. (laughs) Somehow even he will know his creator. Isn't that amazing? I think that too. Sometimes I look at my animals and I think, you know, You know what so many humans just can't seem to figure out. Yeah. They're created creatures. And this says that all created things, all, will sing. I mean, we saw that even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. Exactly. They know when he speaks to them. 
So we come to the end of chapter five with this consummate worship in heaven. And we think, I think anyway, how different this is from the way so many of us, even as Christians, think of worship in our churches. If we're not worshiping the Lamb in spirit and truth, if we're not really honestly understanding that we are praising God for the salvation that is ours through Jesus, we're just attending a show. Mm -hmm. We're just introspecting and drumming up an emotional response. That's not worship. We are called to recognize our sin and to know what Jesus did and to see He's worthy because He died. Mm -hmm. The rest of what's going to happen in this world between now and the coming of Christ and the establishment of His kingdom on earth is being done by Jesus because He is the only one qualified to carry out God's plan. And the victory was won at the first coming. The conquering was done when he died and then broke death. The results of that, the consequences of his victory, are what are being played out in the book of Revelation and will be played out on the earth, culminating in his return and his righteous reign. His judgment has to precede his righteous reign. And that's just something I never used to think about. Mm -mm. I didn't understand it. So if you haven't understood that you are hopeless in your sin and that you need a Savior, and you have one if you trust Jesus because he has conquered, he has died, he has risen from death. And when you trust him, you will pass from death to life, and you will be on the right side of the book of Revelation. You will not be destined for his wrath, but you will be destined to be part of his bride who will eat that marriage supper of the Lamb with him that we will see in chapter 19. If you haven't trusted him, do so now. And join us next week as we begin Revelation chapter 6, where Jesus will begin to open the seals. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.